Thank you for watching this message from The Bridge Church. Our vision here is to be a church that is for Christ, for community, and for the city. Today's message is from the sermon series, The King's Cause. It's a walk through the Gospel of Mark. And if this message has impacted you in any way, please email us at stories at thebridgeilm.com. So um, why don't you pray with me, and I'll lead us before we jump in today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here um, in this place with your people. And I firmly believe that where your people are gathered together, your power and your presence is made known. And so I pray that you would just take this moment, the moments that we have together, and use it as an opportunity for what you would like to do. And with open hands, uh, we, we ask for you to take and for you to use us how you would see fit, Lord. And for the person, God, for the person that's here today that's struggling, that's having a hard time, that's wrestling, maybe seeking, maybe searching, God, would this be their day? I pray that you would work in their life in a way that they haven't experienced before. And so we believe that you can do that, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, today, if you've got a Bible, I want you to open it to Mark chapter 7. We're in a series called The King's Cause. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark, which is in the New Testament. So open your Bibles and find your place there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's okay. We'll give you one for free today. You can grab one on your way out at the resource area. Would love to be able to give you your own Bible completely for free. But we're in Mark chapter 7 today. And today, today is unbelievably providential in a couple ways. First of all, um, first of all, uh, our passage today, later in the passage, we're going to uh, see a, a man who is both deaf and blind, uh, some, someone that doesn't have the ability to speak and someone that doesn't have the ability uh, to see. And in God's providence, we didn't plan it this way, but Chris and Craig Turner, who uh, read the scripture passage this morning, and Chris, who signed uh, the, the words, have a son, uh, Michael, who is... Uh, who is deaf and doesn't have the ability uh, uh, to, to hear correctly or, or speak uh, correctly. And in God's providence, they're the ones that are reading the passage uh, today. It's just, just, just amazing. And then, um, is Michael here, by the way? I, don't, I, I, don't, I was going to tell him what's up, but I don't know if I... Okay, I got you, I got you. Um, so that is one, that's one cool uh, thing. And then here's, here's the second cool thing is that um, we are talking about uh, a... a th- a situation where Jesus intentionally goes into a outsider world in order to demonstrate that his kingdom is inclusive, which is the title of the sermon today, the inclusive kingdom about unity and about the way that he bridges barriers. And it just so happens that this afternoon is our unity in the community event at the Greenfield Lake Amphitheater. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. We just can't we can't plan. We can't plan these things, and so um, I, I'm super excited about this. And so, just um, just to be real candid here at the beginning, a few weeks ago when I was pre- preparing for this and I was studying, I took a look at the text, look over the, the stories, and I'm like, okay, it's a couple more uh, miracle stories. And it, honestly, I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this? I mean, I'm, I, I worry about saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm like, okay, Mark, all you got is a couple more miracle stories for me. You know, I mean, like, I need something. I, need, I, I just thought he was just kind of going through the Rolodex, you know, just giving us more stories. And then when I dug in deeper, I realized that there is something very unique about these two stories and a reason why he includes them in his account of Jesus' life. Now, just as every biography doesn't include everything in every person's life that they are doing a biography about, the biographer includes uh, certain elements and certain pieces of the person's life in order to communicate the grand narrative or the story of that person's life and what they are about. 
which I was thinking uh, this week, it's not like the, the TV show Atlanta, which if any of you have seen that, though unbelievably humorous and did win two Golden Globes, has no plot whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it's just like three rappers in the middle of Atlanta just with no, no storyline. I'm like, what's, what's going Absolutely funny, but that is not what Mark is doing, just including random stories in here about Jesus. Everything that we find in a gospel account is there for a reason because it's creating a narrative, creating a story in which the gospel writer wants us to understand. And what Mark has been trying to get us to understand up to this point is that Jesus is a king, but he's not just a king. He's a certain kind of king, and he is a king for all peoples, and his kingdom is an inclusive kingdom. And that's what he wants us to see today. So look with me. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. This is what he says. And from there he, this is Jesus, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. He just can't get away from people. I mean, he's doing so many unbelievable things that people are knocking on his door all the time. Now, Here's where we get our first glimpse into what Mark is trying to get us to understand. He says that he is going away, and he is going to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is, he, he's taking intentional steps outside of the territory of Israel. He's no longer within Israel. He's going outside of Israelite territory to a pagan territory, Tyre, which was located on the Phoenician coast about 35 miles northwest of Lake Galilee. Now, this is a very... Interesting, um, interesting and intriguing move for Jesus because he is coming as the Messiah to God's people. But we see in this instance, we don't see many of these, but in this instance, he is intentionally going outside, outside of God's people into a Gentile area. Now look at me to verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. Here we have a, here we have a woman, we have a mom that's in a very desperate situation. It says that her, her daughter is oppressed by a demonic spirit. Um, I have three little girls. I have three little girls, uh, Nora, Harper, and Claire, five, three, and one. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like if one of my girls was somehow oppressed or attacked by some kind of evil spirit or demonic spirit about them. It's un un unbelievable. We, we read later in one of the other gospel accounts of a young boy, a young boy who was um, oppressed by a demonic spirit, and it said that the demonic spirit would throw him on the ground and would convulse about him. This is a very, very desperate situation. This, this woman is at the end. You could say she's done. This woman is perhaps heard of Jesus, perhaps understood or heard about what was happening in Jerusalem and in Judea, in, in the area of, of Galilee. And she hears, and then she finds out that Jesus is here, and she comes desperately and falls down at his feet asking for help. Matthew's account, which is the parallel account, tells us that the disciples, she was so relentless that the disciples demanded that Jesus send her away. <laughs> I mean, she is absolutely annoying the heck out of the disciples, and they're trying to get her out of the house, but that's not the way that Jesus operates. And Mark tells us a few things that are very interesting about this woman, and he points them out for us. He doesn't do this all the time, but here he points out several things that are unique about uh, this woman. He intentionally tells us this. 
First of all, that there's a geographic barrier between her and God's people, between her and Jesus. She lives in the area of Tyre, not to be confused with what's on your car, but in the area, the region of Tyre, and there are, they're separated at least by a, a, a couple or a few dozen miles. There's a geographic barrier. There's also an ethnic barrier. Uh, her ethnic makeup, uh, Mark tells us, was Syrophoenician. That means she, it was a combination between Syrian and Phoenician that there was a different ethnic barrier, that she looked differently, that her skin color would have been perhaps somewhat different than Jesus and the others in the nation of Israel. As well, we see, Mark tells us that uh, she is a woman, that there is a gender barrier here. This is a woman who is in a male-dominated society. This would have been unheard of for a woman to approach a Jewish rabbi like this and insert herself into his, his life, into a conversation that she would not have been welcome into, but she, there's a gender barrier. And then we see as well that there's also a, a religious barrier, that she's a pagan. She's a Gentile, which means she's non-Jew. She's outside of, of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people had developed a disdain for the Gentiles, that they were religiously unclean, that they were sexually immoral, that they were wicked. They were the outcasts. They were the wicked Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, but in full disclosure here, um, I used to think that I was uh, uh, non-Gentile and that the Gentiles were other people that were out there away from me because I'm part of God's uh, crew, God's, God's clan here. Um, the reality is, is that all of us in the room today are Gentiles. <laughs> Unless you are of the house of Israel, uh, you are a Gentile today, which means Jesus' interaction with this woman, you could almost see yourself in the same light and put yourself in the same situation as her. She is a, a Gentile. This woman had none of the religious, moral, social, or cultural credentials necessary to approach this Jewish rabbi, Jesus. And one of the things... That, that made Jesus so radical is that he was uh, continually and ongoing continuously, he was tearing down the barriers that existed in his culture. He was constantly tearing down geographic barriers, ethnic barriers, gender barriers, and religious barriers. You just cannot read the Gospels and get any other explanation than that. You have to take a pen or a razor to your Bible and cut things out if you don't understand that. Here's what Mark is trying to get us to understand from these stories. Jesus' kingdom is an inclusive kingdom. It's an inclusive kingdom. There's just no way around it, which means that Jesus doesn't have categories for the kind of person who is welcome in his kingdom. The kingdom isn't reserved for a certain class of people or a certain color of people or a certain culture of people. And the Jewish people, the nation of, of, the nation of Israel, God's people, they had categories for the kinds of people they thought that God allowed in their kingdom. People that observed religious holidays like them, people that observed certain customs and practices and values as they did, people that talked like them and used the same scriptures as they did and believed the same, perhaps even voted the same way as, as they did. They had a certain idea of the type of person that God allowed into their kingdom, but Jesus breaks that down and Jesus says, everybody's welcome in my kingdom. Everybody is, is welcome. And I was, I was actually thinking about this a, a couple weeks ago, and I feel like God really kind of gave me this insight into John 3.16. 
John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the entire Bible. I'm, probably half of you could, could quote it uh, j- right, right away. I'll, I'll put it up for you. It's in the King James Version. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I used to think, I used to see this verse primarily through the lens that whosoever believeth in him, that means you or you or you or you or you or you or you, it doesn't matter, whosoever, like anybody can believe in the gospel. It does mean that, but I think Jesus has something more intentional about what he means with this verse. In the context, Jesus in John chapter 2 had just gone into the temple and ransacked the place because they had made it a hub for a lot of division and higher and even money-making inside the temple. And Jesus just goes to town on the people there, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. He says that. And on the, on the heels of John chapter 2 and that demonstration in the temple, Nicodemus comes up to him and asks him about this kind of kingdom. And in Jesus' story, in his conversation to Nicodemus, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Which means there isn't a certain category of people or class of people or ethnicity or Jewish kind of person that you have to become in order to enter God's kingdom. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. Now, this is what this means. If Jesus is living intentionally this way, then that's, this has to be true of us as well. To follow Jesus is to intentionally bridge cultural barriers. It's intentional. It doesn't mean like you happened to. I ended up in a scenario where I was around different people. It means that Jesus was intentionally, that he was intentionally putting himself in scenarios where people were different, and he was bringing unity to the different situations. That that was his, it was his practice. It was intentionality. I'll have just, just to be honest with you, the majority of my life has not been spent intentionally trying uh, to bridge a division between different kinds of people. Uh, I grew up in the deep south, South Carolina. Um, I, I grew up in a family that had a lot of prejudice. Um, I grew up in a family that um, said very unkind things about people just because of a different color of skin or because they weren't Southerners, because they were Northerners. Um, I grew up in, in that kind of situation, but you know, that wasn't really appropriate. back. So we, we just kind of operated under the, the guise of, well, let's just be, let's passively not try to engage in any kind of division around us. But we, we would, you know, we would do it passively in our own homes and, and, and things like that. It wasn't an intentional engagement to bridge uh, barriers. Now, I've said this before, and I hear a lot of people say this as, as well. They say, no, 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 Ethan, um, now, now I'm not a racist. <laughs> Which, um, if you need to clarify that for me, uh, you're probably a, ra- uh, probably a racist. I mean, if I need you to tell me that it, rather than see it, then it probably means... now. And here's, here's the idea. We, we think that when we say, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a racist, either. we think that, oh, I've, I've kind of graduated from the state of, of not being prejudiced against people that have differences in me. And here's the truth. None of you have graduated from that. None of you. I haven't graduated. Peter, who was the chief apostle, got rebuked by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 because he had prejudice towards the Gentiles. 
Every single one of us, here's the reality, has a, something in us. We call it sin. Call it brokenness. Call, us, call it a bent in on ourselves. A bent where we have prejudice in our hearts that people that look differently than us, people that vote differently than us, people that are of a different geographical region than us, they're northerners, they're so, whatever. And we, 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 we have prejudice that grows in our... I have prejudice every day. I have prejudice every day that I have to give to Jesus and let him re, renew who I am and my heart in me so that my heart isn't bent in on myself and so that I can be welcoming of other people. And Jesus wasn't like passively, I'm not going to be divisive. No, he was intentionally going to bring unity to the situation. I'll say it this way. It's not enough just not to be a racist. You have to be a gracist. You have to intentionally engage. That's what it means to bring. Some of you like that. Somebody needs, somebody, somebody needs, to, somebody needs to tweet that. But I mean, we're Christians, we're Christians. We, we are people of the kingdom of God. Like, who, who else is going to be a gracist? I mean, we have, we have to be, which means we've got to be continually and regularly checking our hearts and asking, am, am I intentionally trying to bridge uh, barriers that are and divides that are in my culture and in my city? And we live in a city with a lot of division. I mean, I, I won't go into detail. We just, we just live in a city that, that, that is divided on so many uh, different uh, uh, levels. And I love the name of our church, the Bridge Church. Now, in, in, just to completely let you in on how that went down, um, we had a launch team when we began uh, the Bridge Church, and we actually had a list of several different names um, of which we would uh, agree upon, on which, and so we literally just let people vote. And um, there were no, we didn't have any cool hipster Latin names, you know, that, you know, that would be really, really fun. We didn't have any of those. Um, but we ended up voting, ended up voting on the Bridge Church um, because it sounded cool. And uh, you got the coastal water and the bridge and stuff like that. But the real, the real reason that we decided on that was because Jesus is the bridge. That, that he is the bridge, that, that he crosses the divide, that he crosses uh, the gap, which means it doesn't matter how far away you feel from God, there's nothing that can, uh, there's no separation that Jesus cannot bridge. And that Jesus' grace reaches further than your own separation from God. That's why we named it the bridge. But we didn't realize when we were naming it that God would also use our name to not only demonstrate Jesus, but to be a bridge in our own city and in our own community that we would bring different people together and that would be unified and that we would uh, see unity around the gospel and what God has done. And we're seeing that in our city, and that's God's providence for our church. I was having a conversation with a, an older African-American gentleman at Port City, Java th this past week, and he said he, said, he, he kind of sees some things that are going on. He's lived here a long time. And he said, uh, you, you know why uh, your name is the Bridge Church, right? It's because God is using you guys, your church, to be a bridge in our community that we desperately need. And so I know some of you are, are thinking, but Ethan, like, how, how, do I how do I intentionally live this way? Give me a practical opportunity for how I bridge cultural barriers. Well, there's an event this afternoon uh, that is um, <laughs> Unity in the Community uh, event. And here, here's, here's what I love about this uh, event. We want to be a multi-ethnic church, and the goal isn't merely a multi-ethnic worship gathering or a multi-ethnic event. Uh, the goal is a multi-ethnic lifestyle. Yes, yes. The goal is for you to have a multi-ethnic dinner table, yes, yes. that your community group should be multi-ethnic, which means 
We have to figure out ways to intentionally develop meaningful relationships with people that are different than us. And what a what a what better opportunity than this afternoon to be together with people of all different cultures and, and backgrounds and experiences and be able to have the opportunity to hang out together and develop relationships together. You're welcome. All right, verse, verse 27, we'll go on. And he said to her, uh, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa, okay. <laughs> that doesn't sound very inclusive, Ethan. What is going on here? In Jesus' conversation with her, his response to her, Jesus issues a, a test. And the test is a dinner table metaphor. I love this. And he basically says that it's understandable that children should be the ones that eat first at the dinner table. It's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. Which, just as a side note, if you, are, um, if you have a dog and children, you should feed your children first. Okay, You're in sin if you give your dog food first. That's what, that's what, that, that's what that means. Here's... Here's how the metaphor plays out. Uh, the children are representative of the nation of Israel and the children of God who are to be fed first. And the dogs are representative, representative of Gentiles, those who are outside the kingdom of God, who are secondary to the nation of Israel. And it was common nomenclature among the Jews or the Israelites to use the phrase uh, dogs for uh, the Gentiles. Now, I have heard it argued that Jesus is trying by using this phrase to denigrate this woman to the status of a dog, that he's trying to demean her and degrade her. But I really don't think that is the best understanding of the metaphor that he's using. I rather think that he's trying to demonstrate that she as a Gentile is outside the people of God and ultimately the people of God take priority over the Gentiles regarding the unveiling of Jesus' kingdom. I like how, how one writer says it, William Lane. He says, It seems appropriate to interpret Jesus' statement on the background provided by the Old Testament and later Judaism where the people of Israel are designated as the children of God. Understood in this light, Jesus acknowledges the privileges, privileges of Israel and affirms that the time has not yet come for blessing to be extended to the Gentiles. Now, I think this is what Jesus is, is doing here. He's trying to give her a little bit of a metaphor and a picture that she's a Gentile and, the, and God's people have to come first. Now look at me in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Matthew's account says Jesus, the son of man. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now this is just unbelievably fantastic. I mean, you, you, like this, you do not see this kind of response hardly anywhere in the entire Gospels. If it was me, I'd be like, um, Jesus just referred to me as a dog. I'd be like, okay, sorry, I wasted your time, and I'll go, I'll go, I'll go on my way. Like, okay, sorry about that. But she, 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 does, she doesn't do that. She, she understands something deeper about Jesus. She understands more of who he is and what he has come to do. And she doesn't just give up. She takes the metaphor and she actually turns it back on to Jesus and answers it back to him. And she first says, she says, you are Lord. She gives him the title of lordship, that, she, that she, he's the son of God. Like she recognizes that he's not just a mere rabbi. She refers to him as Lord. She also, this is key, she also doesn't disagree with Jesus' designation of her as a Gentile. She doesn't try to excuse away her background. 
She doesn't try to excuse away her culture. She doesn't try to excuse away that she recognizes that she isn't inside the people of God. She doesn't give any rebuttal. She just owns it. And then she takes the comparison one step further and says the children are fed, but the dogs eat the crumbs under the table at the same time. She's saying, yes, Lord, the children, let the children be fed, but there's enough food that drops from your table for even the dogs to enjoy. It's amazing. This Gentile woman has this insight. Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor, he says of this woman, the brightest jewels are often found in the darkest places. It's amazing what she says and what she believes and what she sees and what she feels. And here's what I think she is doing. She's not pleading to Jesus on the basis of her own goodness or worthiness. Rather, she is making her plea on the basis of his goodness. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve based on my own goodness. No, she's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. Somehow this pagan woman knows and believes that the goodness of Jesus is not only for a select few, but is for everyone. And here's what I think that Jesus is trying to teach us. Our standing before God is based solely on his goodness. Our standing before God is based solely on, on his goodness. Now, this, imagine, imagine with me. Imagine with me uh, here in a, a few months you were able to take a trip across the Atlantic Ocean to the UK, perhaps to England, and as you were there you were seeing the sights and you were visiting and going from town to town and place to place, and as you were traveling you come upon the palace of the Queen of England. Like That is a magnificent palace, and I think I would like to live there. And so you uh, go back to your hotel room and you look at your bank account. You decide to withdraw a few uh, funds. You get some cash on you. You put your cash on your pocket and you walk back to the palace and you knock on the door and the queen opens the door and you say, I would like to rent a room in your palace today. It'd be ludicrous. I mean, she'd be like, excuse me, um, who are you? And what do you, you cannot, no, you don't get to, you can't buy, it's not for sale, you can't actually earn your way into my palace. The only way that you would ever be able to live inside the palace of the queen is if she, out of the own goodness of her heart, invited you in to live with her. And this woman recognizes that there is nothing about her, there is nothing that she has, her own goodness, her own moralness, her own pedigree, that is anything worthy of allowing her to enter into Jesus' kingdom. And she recognizes that it is only on the basis of Jesus' goodness to her. You see, the only way you enter a relationship with God is when you acknowledge that you don't deserve it and that you can't earn it. And it's only when you plead on his grace through faith that the doors of his kingdom are open to you. That's the only way it works. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says this, on the one hand, the gospel is that you're more wicked than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope at the same time time. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel isn't that you came to church and you can be a better person and you finally made it here. And if you just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you start uh, living a better life, then man, God is going to be impressed with you and he's going to let you into his kingdom. That is not how it works. Because then if that was the case, you would get to heaven, you would be in his kingdom. And guess who got you there? You did. You did. You, You would live throughout eternity and be like, I got here. Jesus, God, will not have anyone in his kingdom in that way. 
The only way that you enter in, the only way that you get to know him and enter his kingdom is you recognize that you don't deserve it and you cannot earn it. That you don't have enough goodness in order to, to get there. But here's the other good thing about this is that it doesn't matter what you've done negatively. There isn't any negative consequence that keeps you from getting into the kingdom because you don't earn it. And it's not based on your own works. Which means the person that is very moral and very pious and very upright, you need to recognize that you aren't good enough. And that it's only in Jesus' goodness that you can actually get into his kingdom. But it also means that the person that's struggling and in pain and looking at their past and looking at their divorce and looking at their history and look at the things that they have struggled with, it isn't based on your goodness anyway. It's based on Jesus' goodness, and that's how you enter his kingdom. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. So it separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Grace. You, you did not do anything to enter his kingdom. It was only by sheer grace. And you cannot enter until you get on your knees and you plead for grace in faith for him. When you do that, he welcomes you in, takes you into his family, invites you into his kingdom. And here's another, another thing I'll say is that uh, Jesus' encouragement to all of us, the first thing that he encourages us to do is what? Baptism. Okay, maybe I need to train you guys on that a little better. Um, <laughs> The first thing that Jesus encourages all of us to do is baptism. It's, it's the first step of every believer. It, it's your, you could say, inauguration into the kingdom of God. It's your inauguration ceremony to the watching world. It's, it, it, it's your inclusion event that demonstrates to the people around you that you are part of his kingdom. And that means every Christian, every believer, Jesus commands. Jesus commands you to drop into the water. Now, what is baptism? It sounds very, uh, very, uh, um, uh, I guess, daunting. Baptism is a symbol. You, take, you would go down to the water. You would not baptize yourself because that's not how you enter the kingdom. You would be baptized by someone else, and they would take you into the water and dunk you under the water, which represents a death and darkness. It represents your prior life. It represents your sin and your past and everything that was death about you. And then they raise you up out of the water, which represents new life, that you're a new person, that you're a new human, that God has given you a new life. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new man. He's a new woman. They bring you up out of the water, and it's representative of Jesus' death, that Jesus, he went into a tomb, into a grave, that he was buried, that he was under the earth for three days, but then he, he broke the shackles, and he, raised, he rose himself from the grave and defeated Satan, sin, hell, and the grave, and he is resurrected forevermore. That's what your life is. That's what your life is. So some of you, some of you uh, have never been baptized, so you, you need to be baptized, so we're, and we're going to do it in two weeks at Easter Sunday. And you can do it. Uh, we'll, we'll help you. You can talk with us at the end. You can go online to forward slash baptism and, and, and find out any information you want there, and we'll help you take the step to be baptized. It will be a wonderful, it will be one of the most liberating things you've ever experienced in your life. It'll be uh, fantastic. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now look at me, verse 29. And he said to her, Jesus responds back to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Her eyes were different than before. Her face was different than before. Her body was different than before. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus looked at the woman and he said, A woman, great is your faith. See what's happening here? The prior passages, Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees, religious leaders, the moral elite of, of their day. Jesus is surrounded by the seminarians and the pastors and the people that, they, that think they've got it figured out. And he looks at them and just shakes their head and like, where's, where's your faith? And then he goes to a Gentile area to a woman who is a Syrophoenician. And he shows up to this woman. And after his encounter with her, he looks at her and says, great is your faith. See that? 
Jesus doesn't have categories for who has great faith, for what you have to be in order to understand his. It's for everybody. It's for anybody. And faith is, I say it this way, faith is the currency in the economy of God. Faith is the currency in the kingdom of God. And everything that happens is through faith is a response to faith. Now look at me at verse 31. We'll, we'll continue. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was ten cities, uh, Deca and uh, whatever, Uh, Decapolis, um, it means ten cities. He's still in a Gentile region, cut that out of the video, verse 32. Um, And they brought to him, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, he couldn't hear right, he couldn't talk right, and they begged uh, him to, to... Beg Jesus to lay his hand on him. I love this. There's a group of people, of friends, that they got a brother, they got a friend who doesn't have the ability to hear right or speak right. They bring him to Jesus, which we have, as I mentioned earlier, we have people in our congregation that are both struggle with blindness and being deaf. And Jesus impacts this man. I love the way, what he does to this man, verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, put his fingers into his ears. Which is just really odd for the record. I'm not sure if that's like a Jesus wet willy or something, but puts his fingers into his ears. And um, after spitting, he hawked a loogie for some reason and touched, sorry, touched his tongue, puts his finger on his tongue, verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. This is Jesus. He sighed. He means he moaned and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. His ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly and Jesus charged them, tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it and they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now there are some incredible similarities about this story, these two stories. They're both happening in Gentile regions to Gentile audiences to Gentile people. There's a lot of similarities, but there's also, I think, some significant differences between this man and the young girl who was just healed. Now, the scenario of the young girl, Jesus never sees her. He never even comes into contact with her. He heals her from a distance. He's not close. He, he can do that. He can do whatever he wants. And so he heals her without having close proximity. But in this situation, he takes this man, he takes him to the side. I imagine he grabs his arm or puts his arm around him, and he puts his fingers in his ears. man that, that can't hear, but he can feel. He can feel Jesus touching him, and Jesus touches him in the broken place of his life. And then Jesus spits, he puts saliva on his fingers, and he touches the man's tongue, which doesn't have the ability to speak. And then he sighs. He sighs, he moans deep down within him. And the man he's touching and embracing is physically impaired, and Jesus emotionally connects with him. Now, one commentator pointed out that this is a little bit odd for Jesus to do. Jesus knows that he's getting ready to heal this man in like five seconds. So why all the empathy, why all the pain, why all the emotion, Jesus, if you know he's getting ready to be delivered and to be able to hear and speak for the rest of his life, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you demonstrating such empathy and pain with him? Here's why I think he is doing this. Because Jesus, in seeing this man and touching this man and feeling this man, he sees something of the coming of his own kingdom. He sees a long-anticipated coming of a king who would make all things well. 
And there's a word here that Mark uses in this passage that really isn't used hardly anywhere else in the entire Bible, except in the Hebrew, which in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the same word is used in a passage, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. And I think this is what Jesus pictures when he sees this man. It says this in Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. It means the wilderness will smile. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, which is a flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. This is how you know that he's come. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Here's why I think Jesus sympathizes with this man, because in this man he sees his kingdom coming. He sees a kingdom that is coming and making all things well. Or as the other New Testament writers say, he is making all things new. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus' kingdom is about, which means today, regardless of who you are, regardless of how you come in here, when Jesus comes into your life, he makes you new. He makes you new. He takes whatever your past is, whatever your pain is, whatever your problems are, and in the middle of that, he makes you a new person. Gives you a new heart, gives you a new mind. He's restoring what has been broken in your life. And then Jesus gives us the assurance that this isn't the only newness that we will experience, but one day he will come and make all things new. He'll make all things new. Not even just part, not even just glimpses. What we see here are glimpses of his newness, glimpses of his kingdom. But one day he'll make all things new and what a glorious day that will be. And you and I are a part of his kingdom agenda. Part of seeing his kingdom come to this space, coming to this place, coming to this city, coming to your home, coming to your workplace. It's you. You get to bring the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to see and get a glimpse of what it looks like to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, what it means to follow him. God, and I pray that you would help us to be a people, a church, a congregation, assembly of God that demonstrates what it's like to know Jesus and to follow him. I pray that you would restore in us and make all things new and that you would allow us to be a part of seeing that happen in our city as well. So God, we ask this and we say this in Jesus' good name. Amen.